All right, well, our scripture reading is again from Matthew 7, bringing the Sermon on the Mount to, uh, to a close. Um, I'm going to read that and then pray. So Matthew 7, 13 through 14, and then 24 through 27. If you remember last week, we read the verses in the middle. This week, we're reading the, the beginning and the end verses. This is Jesus speaking. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. This is the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in um, a rowdy service with a lot of kids, your spirit can still move and shift and work in us. We thank you that through imperfect words, your spirit can still redeem us and renew us, restore us, sanctify us, make us beautiful people. And so I pray now that you continue to work as we contemplate together um, the meaning of this passage and, and, and how it would apply to us, that you will open our hearts and minds, um, open it with the confidence that you are for us and that even challenging words that may at the first taste bitter to us can ultimately be sweet, life-giving, renewing words. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so as I said, uh, Jesus is bringing the Sermon on the Mount to a close, and last week we looked at the middle verses, and he talked about false prophets, false or unhealthy leaders. He's, he warned, as he brings the sermon to a close, he warned the listeners to beware of false prophets, unhealthy leaders, to be discerning um, as they're uh, engaging with these leaders. But that warning is couched in this broader call to action that I just read in, in 13 through 14 and 24 through 27. He calls them to action. Now, all of us, you know, if, if you've been to seminary or, or anything like that, you, you know you've got, they, they tell you you've got to bring your sermon, like you've got to land your sermon. Right? All of you have heard sermons that never really landed. They just kind of hovered above the ground, talking about, about a lot of stuff and but never really kind of coming to the ground and being concrete and saying, all right, what are you going to do with what I've just given you? What are you going to do? And that's what Jesus does here. He's like, all right, here's, here's what I want you to walk away with. Here's what you need to do, right? This narrow and wide gate. He says, you've got these two choices. Now make your choice, right? He's showing them. He's showing us that following him means accepting this, this kind of narrowness, this difficulty that will forever define our lives, define our experience. And he's calling us to consider, do you understand that? Are you prepared for that? Do you recognize what it's going to ask of you? But notice too, in that second 
set of verses, 24 through 27, that there's this promise, right? Again, Jesus is a good preacher. He can't, he can't just kind of bring it down to a landing. He has to end like with a hymn, like a promise, a ray of, a ray of hope. And that's what he does here. It ends with this promise that those who hear him and do what he says, truly hear him and let his word shape their lives, that they're like these people building their house on a rock and the wind and the rain and the, the flood comes and it doesn't get to them. The house stands, right? And so Jesus is saying, it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. There's going to be a battle, but you're going to be safe if you stay with me. You're going to win if you stay with me. You can be confident that you're going to be okay, that the life that you're desperately searching for, you'll find if you stay with me. There's a ray of hope in that, right? So three points, the narrow gate, the difficult way, and the hidden life. Um, So first, the narrow gate. I did it right this time. Just the first point you see, the narrow gate. Now we hear narrowness in our kind of day, and we automatically think of kind of maybe in a, just a pure exclusivism, exclusivity or an elitism. Um, kind of the, the narrow gate might be the elite gate where only certain people get in. You kind of think about that famous, like, is it the Marine model? Like the few, the proud, the Marines. And maybe Jesus is talking about the narrow gate. Just the few get in. Just the select few get in that gate. But that's not actually what he says. What he says is that very few find it. Very few even find the narrow gate. Right? They don't, they're not really even looking for the narrow gate. Now, the gate, like a gate, Jesus uses it here, but all in most cultures, gates are kind of like a, you know, a symbol of like a new chapter in your life, a new beginning, a new, maybe a new awakening. And that's how Jesus uses it here as this, this gateway, this entrance into the life that comes from him. And he says, find the narrow gate, but few find it. Enter the narrow gate, but few find it. It's like you know, it's kind of like we're all searching for life, but we're all searching for life kind of like we're all walking into a stadium, right? Where when you're, you see a big crowd of people and they, it starts to collect up in front of you, your eyes start scanning for the best way in. And what you're looking for is kind of the widest gate, right? Where, where the line's flowing, where people aren't getting clogged up. You don't scan and start to try to find like the narrowest gate. I'll go to that gate because that's where it's single file and you have to wait a really long time. And no, I'm going to go here because it's going to get to me where I go the easiest, We search for the wide gate. And Jesus is putting his finger on that default mode that we all have to find the easy way, the wide gate, not not the narrow gate. We don't want to go in the narrow gate. Think about why you make a gate narrow at all. Like in that day, if you had a narrow gate in a wall, it was so you couldn't just rush in with a whole army, right? Or all your weapons, you would have to unload and come in single file. The whole idea is to have an orderly procession in, but you have to leave some baggage behind you. And that's the idea of the narrow, narrow gate. You can't go through without shedding something, without undergoing some kind of reduction. And again, that runs against the grain of our our default mode, right? Because all of us, you know, we want fullness of life. We want life with Jesus. We want to glorify him. And we know, like we recognize it's going to take some sacrifice, like it's going to take some discipline. But we want to have, we want to be able to have some control over the limits to what God can ask us. We want to say, I want to give this much, but no more. Just how much are you going to ask me? That's, that's how our heart works. I say the Christian life is sacrifice, and there's an impulse in us to say, well, well, just how much, though? Just what is he going to ask of me? Just what is he going to ask of me? And that reveals we're saying, just how narrow is this gate going to be? Just how difficult is this, is my experience going to be? Right? We know that to have change, it requires discipline and sacrifice. And yet there are things we think we must retain if we're going to live. 
And it creates this kind of strange paradox within us. If you're, because, because we don't want to be disrupted. So if you're in a helping profession, here's what I mean. If you're in a helping profession, like doctor, a counselor, firefighter, uh, whatever else, pastor, you're going to have this experience where, where people are going to come to you, right? There's a strange dynamic that happens. They come to you. They pay sometimes like big money for your help. And you try to help them. You might diagnose them. You might say, okay, here's your problem. You've got too much sodium in your diet. You need to change your diet. Or you need to learn how to relate to people in a different way. And they say, thanks, doc. Thanks, counselor. Thanks, pastor. Thanks, whatever. And they go away. And a month they come back. And not a thing has changed. They haven't done a thing that you told them to do. Right? They're asking for your help. But at the same time, they're resisting your help. They're paying you lots of money for your help. But at the same time, they're not going to do what you say. You know, it's as if they're sitting down and saying, I need your help, but I'm also going to do everything I can to, to prevent you from helping me. It's, it's something that happens. Now, what's going on there? Right? They're willing to pay. They're willing to, they're, they're searching for the wide enough gate, that gate that will let them change without having to sacrifice the things they think they can't live without. Do you follow me? And that's what we're all looking for. We're not looking. He says, enter the narrow gate, search for the narrow gate, but few find it because we're not looking for the narrow gate. We're not asking, okay, Jesus, just what is it that you require of me? I will do anything. We're saying, Jesus, how much can I get away with doing and still follow you and still get in and still get through? He says the gate is narrow and few find it. Few find it because few are actually looking for it. How many of you are searching for the narrow gate? Not just trying to give up as little as possible, but trying to give up everything that's necessary. Whatever you ask me to do, Jesus, that's the, that's the heart, that's the disposition that comes through the narrow gate. Few find it, he says. Even fewer, when they find it, actually go through it. There's the story of the rich young ruler. I think it's in at least three of the Gospels. You've probably heard the rich young ruler story, but this young wealthy man, he comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, keep the Ten Commandments. I'm kind of paraphrasing a little bit. And, and the man says, well, I've kept those since I was a little boy. And Jesus says, and it's interesting, he says he has compassion on him. He's drawn to him. He can see this man's kind of close. But he, and, he, and he says, okay, sell all you've got, sell all your wealth, and give the proceeds to the poor. And it's such a sad story because the young man is actually sad. He's, it's like he, part of him wants to go through the gate, but part of him recognizes the narrow gate will require him to, to, to give all of his wealth over to Jesus, to do whatever Jesus wants to do with it. And he can't bring himself to do it, even though, and it makes, it makes him sad, not just Jesus. It makes the young man sad. And it's not that Jesus is saying, give up all you have to, to be saved or to earn your salvation. He's saying, this is how you receive eternal life, inherit, receive eternal life. It's by taking your hands off of your wealth and clinging it to me, clinging to me. You know, and we could look at the young man and we could look at him obeying the commandments and would say, oh my goodness, like that's a narrow, that's an exclusive life. He's so devoted. And yet in that man's eyes, it's so much harder to give up his wealth that he's kind of compensating in a sense, isn't he? He's being so devoted to the Ten Commandments, but it's so he can enjoy his wealth the way he wants. He's not searching for the narrow gate. He's searching for the wide enough gate. He's not searching to give up everything that's necessary. He's searching to give up as little of his wealth as is necessary. Right? So are you searching for the narrow gate? Or are you searching for the wide enough gate? All, each of us have idols, things, created things in our life that we don't, we're not sure we can live without if we have to give them up. And Jesus comes and he says, I need you to give that up. 
It's kind of like the narrow gate experience. I need you to walk through this, which requires you to set down that bag and come through it without it. I need you to trust me enough to do that. And we, oh, our heart resists that. We struggle to believe life can be as good with Jesus as it is retaining whatever it is we think we need to live. All right, what is it for you? What is it for you? Each of us have them. What are you holding on to? Like what in right now is, is stirring in your heart where you're like, oh, should I give that up or not? Notice how that feels to have that concern. Notice all the desires that come up to kind of push, push God away or push me away or say, Joel doesn't know, whatever it is. Notice what's happening in you right now as we talk about giving up everything for Jesus. Oh, that's too radical. That, but the narrow gate, whatever Jesus requires, are you searching for the narrow gate? And be careful because it's not just about making conscious difficult sacrifices, right? Remember, Jesus says right after this, he says, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who makes sacrifices, does big things for God, will enter the kingdom of heaven. You can make sacrifices and never enter the narrow gate, in a sense, right? And there's a great story that the late Tim Keller tells about um, he was leading in college a Bible study. And there was, it was a smaller school, and so it was in, co in college. There was a smaller school, you know, everybody kind of knew each other, and there was this one guy, like real handsome, charismatic, and kind of like a, he slept around a lot. He, he got around. He was like a womanizer. And, you know, everybody's kind of like, oh, what would it be like? like? How cool would it be if he was, you know, converted and became a Christian? And, and on some, in some way or another, he, he is. And he starts showing up for this Bible study, and he stops sleeping around, and he's going to turn his life around, and he's going to devote his life to God. It's like he's entered the narrow gate. Once, like he's done it. But what ends up happening, Keller says, is that slowly, kind of subtly, this man, this young man, starts to have to be the leader. He insists on kind of having the last word in the Bible study, and he insists on taking lead over here, and he doesn't really like when other people are leading. And suddenly, by the end of it, you can tell he has to be in control. He has to be in power. And what looked like this great transformation in this man's heart, it didn't actually transform. He found another way to get the same power he believed he had to have to survive. He experienced it in sex first, but now he's experiencing it in being authority and leadership. You see, it's subtle sometimes. He hadn't quite entered the narrow gate yet. We don't just enter it once. I mean, parts of our hearts, each of us, they haven't quite entered the narrow gate yet. Something else is reigning in us. And that leads to the next point, because how in the world do you know if you've ever found the narrow gate? Maybe you say, well, at least I'm searching, but I don't know if I found it. How do I know I've, I've entered in? Is this just a special experience, Joel, that you're talking about? But the sign is, is that as you go through, things get more difficult and more difficult and more demanding and not less, right? Jesus says, narrow is the gate and difficult is the way. The narrow gate doesn't open up into like an expansive beach where it's like an all-you-can-eat buffet. That's not the picture. It's not like one difficult sacrifice and then you're good to go. Jesus says, no, 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 no. This is how the Christian life is. It's hard to get in. And then once you get in, it's even harder, right? Like he's a horrible marketer. Like you would never mark, like... That's not how we market Christianity. It's like, no, no, just make that decision and then everything will be great. Jesus is like, make that decision and then your life gets really hard. Now come follow me. But that's, what it is. that's how it is. That's, that is, he's not a great marketer, but he's not trying to attract us. He's trying to prepare us, right? He's trying to be honest with us that the Christian life is hard, that it's not easy, right? And if you're ever surprised... If you're, yes, the difficult way. If you're ever surprised by the Christian life, that it's hard, you haven't been hearing Jesus in the Gospels because, oh my goodness, all throughout the Gospels, he's trying to tell you it's not easy. It is not easy. 
It's hard. Somewhere, C.S. Lewis talks about how uh, many people outside Christianity often describe it as kind of a crutch, right? Kind of a, an easy way out. People look at it and they say, man, it would be nice to believe that there's a God in heaven who somehow becomes our father and somehow forgives all of our sins without us having to do anything. Like that would definitely help me with my guilt, but I just can't bring myself to believe something so fantastic as that, right? And the, and the, the subtext is that Christianity is a kind of crutch that we use to, to make our life easy and more manageable. But if you actually, he, he, Lewis makes the point that experiencing Christianity from the outside and from the inside are just two very, very different things. Because when you get inside Christianity, you realize that it's not that, it's not easy. It's, it's extremely hard. He doesn't make life easier. He makes it more difficult. That's Jesus's whole point. When somebody becomes a Christian, it's not like they, it's, what happens is it's like the spirit plants into enemy territory in their heart and starts to expand his reign. And it does bring peace, but that peace comes at the cost of a war. Like a spirit ignites a conflict within us. The Christian life is characterized by this inner conflict. If you have questions about that, just read the Apostle Paul, and he'll let you know all you need to know about the conflict that he experienced in his inner world. And it happens in all of us. None of us are immune to it. The following Jesus doesn't mean that the inner conflict goes away. It actually intensifies. Right? It turns up the dial to 10 the conflict increases, our sense of weakness, our sense of guilt, all those things get higher. The demands, our sense of Christ's demands on us increase, right? Think about how Jesus describes Christianity in the Sermon on the Mount. Let me give you a quick summary of the last couple of chapters. He says we have to live as salt, which means we're always looking for the good in anything and delighting in it wherever we find, even if it's in the life of our enemies and wherever we see it, we cultivate it with everything we've got. We're salt, we're seasoning every relationship we have. He says we live as light, that we boldly proclaim the truth, but in love, in a way that illumines and brings the light and heat and warmth of God's presence to a watching world. He says that we're salt. He says we're light. He says the Christian life is controlling your anger, radically pursuing reconciliation. It's redeeming your lust. It's being loyal and faithful. It's loving your enemies. It's doing good works, not just to be seen from others, but out of love for God and love for others. It means giving your money until it hurts. It means praying as children of God, looking to God rather than money for comfort and security. It means exercising patience rather than rushing to judgment against others. It's a deeper sensitivity to your own weakness rather than the weakness of others, right? The log and the speck thing. Following Jesus means loving God and others with a radical, revolutionary kind of love. It means doing to... Uh, but here's the thing, like it's... Really, following Jesus, it just means doing, it means loving God and loving others, which, as Derek preached a couple weeks ago, simply means doing unto others what you would have them do to you, what you wish they would do to you. That's the summary of the Christian life. And let me tell you, if that sounds simple and attainable, try it for a single day. Just try, just try to love others the same degree that you want them to love you, to listen to them actively with the same energy that you want them to listen to you, to serve them with the same sacrifice that you want them to sacrifice. Just try it for one day and you'll see just how hard it is to live a life that we all agree is just a simple human life to live. It's impossible. Jesus in one sense is calling us to this grand, but in a sense he's just calling us to live as human beings. The way is hard, he says, but it's not because the way is just so hard. It's because we are so weak and broken as human beings. The difficulty is a comment on us more than it is on 
the way itself. Jesus just wants us to live as human beings, loving God and loving others, and yet, oh, it's so, it's so incredibly hard to do. The path is so hard, right? We don't have love in our hearts for others the way that we know we should. We don't keep the rules and the standards that we expect others to keep for us. We're duplicitous. It's just a fact of the matter. Like there's a great illustration where if you, you know, if, if I could, if someone put a tape recorder around my neck and, or, and in my brain, and every time I thought you should, or I said you should, it became a law. You should do this, you should do this. Every time I had an expectation, thought or said or whatever of others, it was listed as a law. And then we compare my life to those own laws I've produced, I've just produced for myself. I break every single one of them. Because I never, I never love other people the way I want them to love me, the way they should love me. Narrow is the gate, difficult the way. Jesus calls us just to be beautiful human beings, and it's so hard for us. Right? So that's the difficult path. Now, I could leave you there. You just pray, come to the table, and be done with it. But some of you, the problem is that some of you are like, you might be, I'm not sure, but some of you might be like really pumped up right now. All right, I can do this. Let's do this. Few the proud, let's do this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna defeat the sin in me. I'm gonna travel the difficult way. I'm gonna show God what I've got. Right? And others of you are are feeling totally beaten down right now. And both of those responses are not quite where you need to be. Those of us who may be a little inflated hearing all this, right? We need to be humbled with the reality, like the, the realistic world of the gospel. The reality is that the path for us is always going to be difficult, no matter what. And we need to accept that rather than try to kind of deny it by acting like we could ever have it be anything but difficult. The difficulty doesn't go away because the evil in us is too pervasive. It's too diffuse. It's too subtle. Death alone rids that. And, it's, and in short of death, we're always going to have problems. The way is always going to be hard. God doesn't say Take the difficult way to prove yourself to God or to anybody else. That's not the right heart. And if you try to do that, you'll just keep getting inflated and inflated and inflated until you finally pop and then the fall. Some of you are feeling beaten down, totally deflated, right? And that's why we have this promise. Jesus ends his sermon on this promise, the hidden life, life on the rock, not a resort, but a rock, right? And so let's look at this promise. He challenges us, but he makes this promise that those who follow him are building their house on the rock, living on a rock. Not a beautiful place to live. It's not soft. It's not comfy, but it's secure. It's safe. It's stable. Right? Follow Jesus. He's saying it will be difficult, incredibly difficult, but you'll have a peace that surpasses all understanding. You'll have a security. The waves won't get at you. You can be confident that the waves won't get at you. Right? And everything changes when you have confidence that you can make it through. That you can look at a mountain and say, I can, I can get to the top of that. It will be hard, but I know I can get to the top. That's the kind of confidence that Jesus is offering us. That's the kind of security that he's offering us. I mean, think about it. If you ever watched a running race or a cycling race or whatever it is, and the winner breaks free from the pack and those last final meters or, or mile or whatever, where they're riding or they're running or whatever, they're doing it alone, right? And they're just... They're just overjoyed and it looks, they might be flying, but it looks so easy and it's because they know they're about to win. And that confidence and certainty that they're going to win, that they have what it takes, it overcomes all the pain and everything else that they're feeling. Right? If you ever sat down for a test, a big test, and you studied like crazy, and yeah, you're nervous coming into it, but you sit down, you take, go to the first question, the second question, the third question, and you're like, I know this, I know this, I know this, and you just, the test 
taking the test itself almost becomes a delight because it's just demonstrating your ability because you know you're going to pass. The confidence changes the way we experience testing. It changes the way we experience the difficult way. Jesus is offering us this confidence to a much greater test. You need to see that, that this is the test of God's judgment. When you see water imagery, when you see flood imagery, you need to think God's judgment. The flood is a symbol of God's judgment. The, the flood is a symbol of the final purification of the earth, where all the bad is washed away. Where Jesus takes from those who have been ungrateful all the good he's given them. And Jesus says, following me, he says, going on the difficult way, it's like building your life on me. Building your life on the rock. If you do that, you will pass the judgment, the final test, the test, the only test that really matters. You will stand, he says, in the judgment. It will not sweep you away. Now, if a, if a, if a flood comes or a tornado comes and it sweeps away all the trees but one, what do you think about that tree? You think, man, that tree's got some strong roots. Like that, That's a strong tree. And that's what Jesus is showing us when we build our life on him when we accept the narrow gate and we embark on the difficult way, the judgment of God confirms us. It demonstrates our strength. It reveals our glory. It establishes us. It purifies us. It doesn't take anything away from us. We look at the narrow gate. We look at the difficulty of the Christian life and we think, why does that have to be so difficult? And there's so much in us that resists it. It's like, there's a great story that M. Scott Peck, I think it's him, a psychiatrist, he tells this. He's working with a woman who's struggling with depression, and he's just struggling to kind of get some traction with her and get through to her. And, and she, he remembers, oh, she grew up in the church. And so he says, well, he's trying to get her to kind of some purpose, some meaning in life. And he says, well, what? you grew up in the church, and she happened to grow up in like a small reformed church. He said, well, you grew up in a church. What's the meaning of life according to Christianity? And she, without, without hesitating, because she, she was catechized, she grew up in it, she said, oh, that's easy, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And he's like, okay. But immediately, he says, these tears come up in her eyes, and she, she gets angry, and she says, but, but there's no room for me in that. Where am I in all that? There's no room for me in that. It's all about God's glory and enjoying him. It's all about, it's all about training and difficulty and following Jesus, but where am I in that? Where is there room for me in that? And, and so, much, so many of us feel that way. What, is there going to be anything of me left after God has done with me, after he's taken me on this difficult course? But the thing is, right, we can be certain that there's room for us because the gospel is that Jesus was the one swept away for us. He was consumed by God's judgment in our place. He followed the Father. He saw and found the narrow gate. But what happens to Jesus? He's excluded Right? On the cross, he is told no entrance. The entrance is barred. On the cross, in a sense, Christianity has no room for Jesus. So we're so concerned, is there going to be any room for me with God? But, but, but on the cross, Jesus experiences the exclusion, the universal, eternal exclusion that we deserved. Because we can't follow God. We can't be human the way that God calls us to be. And he did it for us. He did it so that we could be confident that there is always room for us with the Father. So Jesus essentially, he's saying in this passage, as he brings his sermon to a close, he's saying, you want life? Great. But the only way to become truly alive, to become truly who you are, who you are created to be, the only way you're going to do that is by passing through the narrow gate, submitting. You have to submit to, 
to the ultimate undoing, you have to give everything you hold dear. You have to hold it with open hands, put it on the ground, and let God sort through it. And what will happen is that you will find true life. You will find true life. If we attach ourselves to anything in this world, if we hold on to anything as if our life depends on it, we will always be anxious. We will always be insecure because that thing is always vulnerable. It will be ultimately swept away from us. We feel that in our body and it's why we experience so much anxiety. The only way to, to be safe, to experience stability, is to give all of that up to Jesus. Attach ourselves only to him. Jesus is directing us to go to the only safe place in the world, which is him, the rock. Remember the rich man, right? The rich young ruler. He couldn't follow Jesus because he needed that significance and security that his wealth brought him. But what if he had given it up? You know what would happen to him. What if he had given it up? He would have discovered a deeper, more abiding security and significance because he would be with God. And if you have God, Take away everything else. You have everything. To have God is to have everything. He is the creator, sustainer of everything. To have God, as C.S. Lewis put somewhere, to have God or to have everything and not have God is to have nothing. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? The only place you're safe is with Jesus, but you must give up your control. Narrow your heart. Limit the deep love of your heart only to Jesus. What you don't, what you will discover is not a smaller and smaller world. You will discover an abundant and expanding world where you know God more deeply and enjoy him more fully than you ever have. It's this paradox in the Christian life that narrowness leads to expansion. Becoming weak and giving up everything leads to fullness. That's how the Christian life works. Embracing the pain that God calls you into leads to truer, newer life. continue along the difficult road. You discover the strength of God in you. You discover that his spirit is in you. You discover that you do have what it takes, not just because of what's in you, but because of the God who is in you, who works in you. You discover this confidence that you never knew was possible because you know how the story ends. You know that the difficult way ends in God's glory and his sharing that glory with you, that you become a beautiful person. And the question is, do you believe it? right? God does not promise you an easy life. He promises you a difficult life, but he promises you a secure life, a life that ends in glory. So let me close with this story. There's in the Chronicles of Narnia, the uh, voyage of the Dawn Treader, right? There's this character, Eustace. You've heard of Eustace. He's a jerk. He's really mean. But Eustace has a moment. So he discovers this treasure of gold, but it's cursed. And he steals this bracelet, and it's, it's kind of like a symbol of his greed. And what happens is that because he's taken this treasure for himself, he turns into a dragon. Now, at first, Eustace, true to his nature, likes being a dragon. This is awesome. He can fly around anywhere. He can scare his friends. But as he gets bigger and kind of stronger in this, in, in this power, the bracelet starts to get tight around his arm until it's incredibly excruciatingly painful, right? And along with that pain that he can't ever forget, he starts to realize how terribly alone he is. He has all this power. He's a dragon. Everyone's scared of him, and he's, he's terribly alone. And ultimately, he just wants to become a boy again. And so Aslan offers to help him. 
And Aslan takes him to this pool. And the pool is clear and cold. And, and Eustace so wants to just jump in and let it transform him. But Aslan says, you must undress first. Of course, Eustace is a dragon. He's just covered in scales. And so what does Eustace do? He starts scraping off all of his scales, peeling back layer after layer after layer, but with every layer, it's still a dragon. And then every layer again, still a dragon, still a dragon. And this is how Eustace recounts the story to Peter later. He's retelling what happened to him. Then Aslan the lion said, but I don't know if he spoke, but he said, you'll have to let me undress you. And I was afraid of his claws. I can tell you, because, but I was nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of the peeling the stuff off. You know, like if you picked, off, picked a scab off of a sore. It hurts like crazy, but it's kind of fun to see it coming away. No joke. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, and there I was, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch, and smaller than I'd ever been. And he caught me, caught hold of me, and I didn't much like that because I was very tender underneath now, and I had no skin on, and he threw me into the water. And it hurt like anything for about a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And soon I started swimming and splashing and found that all the pain had gone from my arm, and then I saw why. I had turned into a boy again. And Lewis makes this little narrator's note after this. He said, it would be nice and fairly nearly true to say that from that time forth, Eustace was a different boy. To be strictly accurate, he began to be a different boy. He had relapses. There were still many days when he could be very tiresome, but most of those I shall not notice. The cure had begun. So Eustace is this picture of being marked by the narrow gate, of accepting the difficult way, and he shows us the end product. It's renewal, redemption, restoration. He becomes himself as he truly should be. There is room for each of us in Christianity, but it's the real me and the real you. It's not the false you or the false me. It's the redeemed me, the redeemed you. The gate is narrow. The road is difficult. Few find it. But for those who do, they never look back. And neither will you. Everything you give over to God, every ounce of your control, of your money, of your time, and of your energy, you will not regret it. Do you believe that? Part of me doesn't believe it either. But it's never been proven. I never have regretted it yet. When I'm seeing it with clear eyes, I've never regretted it. And it can be, as, it can be so hard but you won't regret it. The cure has begun. So as we come to the table, this is a kind of narrow gate, right? This is kind of part of the difficult way. Um, this is how we build our lives on the rock, Jesus. Here, we renew our covenant with God. God has given himself to us in Jesus, and now he invites us to continue with him along the difficult way, step by step, day by day giving him all of our heart, our full selves, recognizing that God gives himself in full here by giving us the life of his son, that he feeds us and sustains us with bread and wine, the life of his, his one and only son to, to help us continue along the journey. And all that's required of us 
as we say every week, is to come and make a plate with your hands, which means to come with open hands, bringing nothing with you. Not your performance, not your nothing. You bring yourself, your empty heart, and he will fill it as surely as he fills your mouth with good things to eat and drink. And so let's pray as we come to the table. Father, we thank you for um, the challenge of Jesus, but also the consolation. Um, he demands our singular devotion. He says, no other gods but me, no other saviors, no, no other lovers, no other leaders, no other lords but me. And in each of our hearts, we resist that in one way or the other. There are parts of our hearts that just we're, we're still not convinced, we're still uncertain. Help us to see how patient and gentle you are with us. But you're not surprised by that, but you knew that before long before we did. You're not ticked off at us about it. But you want what's good for us. You want to work that good in us in a way that doesn't destroy us, but that builds us up. Teach us how to trust you and cooperate with you as you work in us. Teach us how to walk step by step with you, day by day, along the difficult way. Remembering that the difficulty is not just the terrain, but it's the heart that we bring into it. It's our weakness and our doubt, but again, you're patient and gentle with us. Help us to experience you as a father, a proud father, a mighty father, a good father, a patient father, as we come to you and eat at your table now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.